beginning of our vision statement as a church, we have the words building on exposition. That is a, a key aspect of the life of our church. We believe that the word of God brings life, that it is sufficient for Christians, and that what we do when we gather together is study God's word. That's what we're here to do. Not get some you know, practical nuggets to take with us into the coming week, although the word of God is always practical. Not to be entertained, but to genuinely and truly study God's word, although imperfectly, because we are all imperfect. But that is our endeavor here at Four Corners, is that we will expound God's word in our time together for corporate worship, and that throughout the week, the times that we have together, we'll be building on that exposition. So we've been going through the book of Titus. And if you'll go ahead and, and put up that first slide for us. We've been spending quite a bit of time going through Titus. We've had 14 sermons on 10 sections. And we came to the last section of Titus last week. And so we've been, we've been trying to, to go through every section, every verse, and really work our way through what is the, the logic of this epistle? What is the overall message or the various sub-messages within that of this letter that Paul wrote to his apostolic delegate to the island of Crete, Titus? Paul wrote this letter to Titus. And I started our series on Titus about over three months ago, four months ago, by noting that although the word gospel is not present in the epistle to Titus, the gospel is in fact everywhere in Titus. So the word, strangely enough, does not appear, but the gospel is everywhere. It is the center and basis for everything that we find in this book. So what have we covered throughout our time in Titus as we've gone through in these 10 sections. We've had a few parts to some of these sections, but these are the 10 sections. We've covered a gospel worker, a gospel leader, a gospel threat, a gospel life, a gospel foundation, a gospel mandate, a gospel respect, a gospel reason, a gospel productivity, and a gospel partnership, which is where we finished up last week. And our plan for today is to wrap up this series with one final overview of this precious little epistle. One final sermon that kind of ties together everything that we've looked at, hopefully will we'll capture the essence of Titus as we have come to it. And next week, we will begin our series, our next series on the Sermon on the Mount, which will be a study, an expositional study of chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we, we typically do books historically throughout the, the, throughout the history of Four Corners. We have gone through books, but the Sermon on the Mount is such a distinct section, similar to how we spent time on the family as we looked at Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 4 for quite a bit. We also have such a distinct section with Matthew 5 to 7. And so what we're going to do is just really dig in deep to that portion of Matthew's gospel, a, a chunk of scripture that has been studied rigorously throughout the history of the church. In fact, it was the most quoted three-chapter set of scripture in all of the early church. Uh, people were just drinking in the Sermon on the Mount. It was so essential to the teaching, the preaching of Christianity as it began and poured over into those early centuries. And throughout the centuries of the church, the Sermon on the Mount has been one of those great 
passages. And so that's what we will spend our time on moving forward starting next week. But today, we will be finishing up Titus. And I've entitled this sermon, Takeaways from Titus. Just as we leave today, these are kind of five essential things that I think as we, as we walk away from this time in Titus, that we need to really get down clear in our minds as a church and as individual members of the church. Five takeaways from Titus, that we grasp the grace, that we control the carnal, that we fight the false, serve the saints, and adorn the answer. So that's what we will spend our time looking at today. First, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We won't read the entire epistle <laughs> as, our, as, as we begin today. We won't do that, but we will be reading lots of Titus as we go through our sermon today. So I would just ask, have your Bible open, uh, have, it, have it wherever you have it on your phone or wherever, uh, so that we can easily glide through these three chapters of this epistle. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord for help. Our God, this is your word. It is your word, and we desire to know it because we desire to know you, the only true God, and your son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, John tells us. So God, we desire this life to be present in us. We desire this life to be flourishing in us and we know that it comes by way of your word, not by human ingenuity, not by our own speculations or our own opinions, but it comes through your holy word. And so God, as we come to the end of this study, of this portion of your word, we ask that you will bring a kind of culminating effect to each heart. God, as we've spent time in this passage, undoubtedly you, by your Holy Spirit, have been working in every person in unique ways. In each of us, Father, we have felt your convicting power. We have felt your comfort. We have been enlightened uh, as to the hope that we have in us, the inheritance that uh, awaits us, the power that is ours, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, these things that Paul prays for in that opening chapter of Ephesians, you have been working these things into us as we've gone through Titus. Father, we trust that. And we ask today that what you have been doing in the last three plus months will come to a, a kind of culminating effect in each heart today. And that the things that each of us need to hear most at the, the aspects of this wonderful epistle that each of us needs most will, will be just pushed into our hearts today, that you will cut us to the heart as those early people were as Peter began to preach to them on the day of Pentecost. We pray, God, that you will do that among us today, that you will work mightily. You are the Lord. You are God. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the one through whom and for whom and to whom and by whom all things exist and everything exists for your glory. And so God, we desire today to glorify you. We desire today that everything we do here honors you and builds up your people. And we pray that this will also offer a nice transition for us as a church and in each of our minds to what we will go to in the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you so much, Father, for your word. Thank you for the message of your word. And thank you, Father, for the message of this epistle. Would you help us today as we spend time together studying it? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
So the first thing that I think we must do if we are to respond well to Titus is to grasp the grace. Grasp the grace. There are so many things that point to the grace of God in Titus. It's everywhere. We said that the gospel, uh, the word gospel is not everywhere. It's nowhere. But that the gospel itself, the gospel of God's grace is found throughout this epistle to Titus. And as I noted last week, we have, as in all of Paul's epistles, in the opening of the letter and in the closing of the letter, this mention of grace. So if you look at chapter one, verse four, we have in the greeting, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then at the end of the epistle, we have grace be with you all. We know that grace is at the center of Paul's message, his gospel that was given to him that he preached, and grace is at the center of everything that he has to say in this epistle to Titus. We also have the recurring God or Jesus Christ our Savior. So God is constantly referred to as our Savior, and so is Jesus. By the way, if you're looking for biblical evidence that is maybe a little implicit, although there's some explicit stuff here as well, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, but if you're looking for some implicit proofs or some implicit evidence from the New Testament of the Trinity, we have it all throughout Titus. Because God and Jesus are used often interchangeably. And that's not to, to dismiss the, the distinction of persons. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons within the Godhead, within the Trinity. But what we have here is divinity being ascribed to Jesus. We know that we worship only one God. And this essence, this divine essence is shared by three persons in eternal community, in love. And we have the Trinity throughout this epistle. But as far as God's grace is concerned, we have this repeated emphasis on God as Savior. And we bounced off of that idea as we came into Christmas. And we looked at how when, when the angel came to Joseph in a dream and he said that you're going to have a son, that Mary's going to have a son, you should take her as your wife, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Jesus, Yehoshua, or Yeshua, means the Lord's salvation, for he will save his people from their sins, the angel goes on to say. So we have God as savior throughout this epistle, and then we have the two long salvation passages, which I frequently called the mountain peaks of Titus. So if you're looking at Titus, if you're sort of looking at the, this beautiful portrait of Titus, you're going to have these two massive mountain peaks, and that's going to be Titus 2, 11 to 14, which we've had on that wall, and then Titus 3, 3 to 7. These are, in all of the New Testament, these are two places where the gospel, the gospel of God's grace, are summed up in, in a very clear and robust way. Concise, clear, and robust. We have that in these two passages. And of course, at the beginning of chapter two, verse 11, we have these words, for the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. That's why, that's why Paul is preaching. That's why Paul has a true child in a common faith. That's Titus. That's why Paul is leaving Titus in Crete. And that's why Titus is to do all of this work in Crete. Why, why, why? Because the grace of God has appeared. That's why. That's the reason for it all. So these are some of the big pictures that we see, or this is part of the big picture that we see. But what about all of the details that tell us specifically 
what God has done for us. We can go through Titus and we get all of this, what, what we call soteriological language. In other words, language that has to do with our salvation. Language that tells us what it means that we're saved, how we've been saved, what God has done in the process of it all. And so just to kind of review what we find in Titus, we find that God has chosen us. We get that in the very first verse. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's chosen ones, his elect, right there at the beginning. So we come to know through Titus that God has chosen us. He has possessed us as we find here on this wall that we have become God's own possession, a possession of Christ, that that he has taken hold of us and he has made us heirs, heirs of eternal life, that he's made us heirs of his own inheritance. And that idea of being heirs of God reminds us that we've been adopted as children, that we belong to God as children that we call him father. He has promised us eternal life and he has revealed himself to us as the never lying God. Look at verse two. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. God made a promise to us and he ensures that promise with his own character. Who is God? He's the one who cannot lie. He's the one who always speaks the truth. When he tells you he's going to do something, he always does it. We don't do that. We don't have anyone in our lives who does that. But God does that and he promises promises us this and he assures us of it with his own character. He has shown us things, we're told throughout Titus. He has shown us goodness. He has shown us loving kindness, mercy, We are told that he has rescued us. What that tells us, if God has rescued us or saved us, is that we were previously in a state of hopeless peril. We were previously in a state of danger, but God rescued us. He saved us. We are told in Titus that he has bought us back or redeemed us, which reminds us that before we came to Christ, we were slaves, bound up. God has come through Jesus and he has released us from that slavery. He has redeemed us. We're also told that he has radically changed us from the inside out. Listen to the language that we get in Titus. Very few places in the New Testament do we find all of these ideas of inner transformation being stacked upon one another. Listen to these words. Purified, washed, reborn, renewed. That's what's happened to you, Christian, in your heart. And that comes out into all of your life. And we're told in Titus that all of these things have happened to us by the grace of God that has appeared through Jesus. He has removed the guilt and penalty of sin from us. And he has done all of this, we are told, by the death of his son and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So not only are we told all these benefits Forget not all his benefits, the psalmist says in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And forget not all of his benefits. These are the benefits that are laid out before us in Paul's epistle to Titus, the things which God has done for us. And we are told that all of these wonderful things, if, if we were just told that God had, had done all of these things for us and, and they were divorced from what I'm about to say, you would be overwhelmed. But then we're told in Titus that God has done all of these things for us through Christ who gave himself up for us. We're reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 31, that how will God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is not just a God who gives freely, this is a God who gives freely through the crucifixion and wrath-bearing of his own son. That is what Titus tells us God has done for us. So, one of the main takeaways from Titus is that we need to grasp all of this. What does it mean to grasp all of this? First, on a very basic level, it means to understand that God has actually done these things for you. Do you realize that? We read these things and it's like, oh, that's great. That's nice. Look at all that stuff God's done. God's so nice. God's so great. God's so loving. He's so compassionate. Have you really dealt with, as we've gone through Titus, have you really dealt with the fact that God has actually, truly, experientially done these things in and to and for you, if you're a Christian? This has happened to you. He has given you a gift. He has graced you. He has shown you favor. Do you believe it? I want to say that those of you maybe who are here who don't know the Lord, you're not a Christian. You know it in your heart. Maybe you wear the name, but you know you're not a Christian in the true sense. You have not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. This is the only way in to trust in this grace of God given freely to sinners, extended freely to sinners. God says, come to me, come to me. I, I, give you this message of God's grace. I give you this message of my grace. This is God. I give you this message of my grace. Come to me and trust in me and your sins will be forgiven. That's a promise from God, the never lying God. You can do that today. You can turn away from your sin. You can turn toward God in faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But for those of us who are here this morning who are believers but busy, busy with life, distracted with all sorts of things, beat down by all of our failures, do we believe that God has already done all of this in us and for us? And that this is our identity. This is our worth. We don't need to find it in the world. We don't need to find it in our performance tomorrow when we wake up. We find it in this. This is who we are. This is what God has done for us. So I think that's one of the things that it means to take, to grasp the grace, but also it means to recognize that there's not a single thing we did to earn it. Not a single thing. If someone asks you, why are you a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Your answer should not be like this. Well, I know. 
Wrong starting point, wrong starting point. The answer begins like this, God. God just showed up in my life. He showed me grace, he showed me mercy when I was lost, I was dead. Ephesians 2 says, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead people don't walk. God just showed up and he raised me from the dead. He poured his mercy into my life. He saved me. This is what we find in chapter three, verses three to five. So look there, please. Chapter three, verses three to five. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And listen to this. This is the, this is, what we have to get out of this, if we are to understand grace, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, period. That's where our salvation began. And it began in chapter one, verse one, God's elect, that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ, and then he sent his son to grab hold of us, to save us, to bring us to the shepherd, to bring us to glory. Not because of works done by us internally or externally. Not because we mustered up enough faith or we mustered up enough of whatever. We mustered up enough humility so that God would embrace us and give us grace. It was purely his grace and mercy. But here's how he does it, through the preaching of his word, through the proclamation of the gospel. So you're here this morning, you say, well, I don't know how to become a Christian. Hear the word of God. Hear the word of God. Expose yourself to the word of God and respond in faith. But know that that faith comes from God. It is not something you produce in yourself. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. As chapter two of Ephesians, verses eight to nine, tell us so crystal clearly. So Titus should increase our grasp of God's favor towards us in Christ. And this, as we've seen, is the foundation and the reason and the motivation for everything that follows. So one of the things that you're going to see is this, the, the next four points that we have that will come up here on the, on the screen, or that we already have up here on the screen. The next four points, control the carnal, fight the false, serve the saints, adorn the gospel, everything's flowing out of this first one. It's the foundation for all of these. It's the reason for all of these. It is the experiential motivation for all of these. So that is to say, if you miss this, then you miss all five. Grasp the grace of God in Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So that's the first, grasp the grace. The second thing that I pray that we get out of this epistle as we depart from it as a church and move on to, to study other portions of God's word is that we will control the carnal or the fleshly. That principle within us that is in rebellion against God, that is a hater of God, as Paul says at the end of Romans 1. One of the things that immediately strikes us about Titus is the amount of moral behavioral, and ethical content. Now, if you've, when you first read through Titus, if you read through it very quickly, 
There's all this morality. There's all this behavior stuff. There's all this ethics stuff that you have to deal with. And one of the things that we started out uh, as, we, as we went into Titus in that very first sermon and that we've, I've, I've tried to drive home throughout is that you can read through Titus quickly and you see all these ethics, all these to-dos and not-to-dos coming at you pretty hardcore. And you also can read through Titus and you can see this overwhelming mercy, goodness, kindness, grace of God that does not come by our works. Both of those things are coming at you full force like floods. And that tells us that in Titus, we have a perfect fusion of grace and godliness. That there's no distinction. It's one of the things that, there's no distinction between these things. You, you can't tear one from the other, that you must have them all together. They are a package deal. And so we come to all of these ethical things. Chapter one, verses five to nine. Just look there briefly, we won't read all of that, but there we have qualifications for elders. We had three sermons on that, so us elders, we elders got beat up pretty bad, you know, throughout those three sermons, but three sermons on how, what our character ought to be as elders and what the qualifications should be for those who would, who would be appointed as elders. Lots there to say about character, lots there to say about conduct. And then look at the very next passage, verses 10 through 16. Paul gives a description of these false teachers. And so he says that here, are, 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 what you're to do, Titus, is appoint elders and they're to look like this. And then he goes right after that and he talks about false teachers. And these, these are some of the characteristics that he gives of these false teachers, that they are defiled. He talks about them as being liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He's saying that the false teachers are, they, they are fulfilling that, that stereotype of Cretans, that these false teachers are, in fact, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So we see there the, the ethical, the negative traits of these false teachers. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, the very next passage, what do we get? Older men are to be this. Older women are to be this. Young women are to be this. Younger men are to be this. Lots of ethics, lots of behavior, lots of conduct, lots of morality, there in these verses. But it doesn't stop there. Then we get to chapter three. Chapter three, verse one. All of these ethics about, all of this ethical material about how we are to conduct ourselves as members of society. So how we are to relate to governing rulers, how we are to relate to our neighbors, how we are to treat people, showing courtesy to all people, to show perfect courtesy toward all people is the way that it ends. Lots of material here about what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. What you ought to be and what you ought not to be. Lots of that in Paul's letter to Titus. So you cannot read Titus without being constantly reminded that our character and conduct matter so much to God. And here's the thing you have to see is that you could, you could have an understanding of grace that, that eliminates what I just said. You could have an understanding of grace that says, well, on account of grace, God doesn't really care. But that's not true. That's a lie. What we have in Titus is what we have throughout the New Testament. It's what we have throughout all of Scripture. And that is that God cares so very much about our character and conduct because God cares so very much about his own glory. 
the end for which all things were made. And when we reflect him, we glorify him. So let me say it this way. Purified people should be pure. Just makes sense, right? It's natural. Redeemed people, people who've been bought back out of slavery, redeemed people should not be bound by sin. Just makes sense. People who belong to God, who are heirs of God, and who have his spirit living inside of them should display his attributes. That too just makes sense. Displaying God because God has made us his own and he inhabits us by his Holy Spirit who has transformed our hearts. And the one idea that keeps popping up in these ethical lists, one idea that kind of surfaces up to the top is self-control. So look at verse eight of chapter one. Verse eight. Talking about elders. Going on, be hospitable, a lover of good. Self-controlled. Look at chapter two, verse two. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. And look at verses three to five. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. By the way, that implies control of tongue and control of appetites. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be what? Self-controlled. And then look at chapter two, verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then look at, cha- look at chapter two, verse 12. For the grace of God has appeared. I'm reading verse 11 first. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and look at this, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control. So if we are to kind of look at the, if we are to feel the weight of all of these ethics, or all of this ethical material, if we are to feel the weight of all of this morality and feel the weight of all of this instruction on our behavior, the one thing that really needs to be driven home for each and every one of us, no matter what place you are in life, is this idea of self-control. So just a quick question. To what extent does this idea factor prominently in your own growth as a Christian? especially if you have maybe been one of those folks who in your own mind have thought in terms of grace to the expense of these ethical demands that we understand here in in Titus. To what extent has self-control factored in to your own discipleship, your own growth as a Christian believer? And this idea of self-control tells us that something has been dethroned and something has been Empowered. So I want to talk about that for just a moment. Something has been dethroned and something has been empowered. That's what is implied by self-control. First, our old master has been dethroned. What was your old master? Your old master, there's a lot of ways we could, we could identify this old master. We could say Satan. We could say self, as we have implied here with self-control. But I want to give it to you the way Titus does. Your old master is defined in chapter three, verse three as this, various passions and pleasures. Various passions and pleasures. 
So before you became a Christian, who reigned in your heart? Your passions and your pleasures. Everything you did, whether you knew it or not, was governed by, controlled by, under the guidance of various passions and pleasures of self apart from God. That was your old master. In chapter two, verse 12, he calls it worldly passions. John talks about in 1 John what is of the world. What is of the world? The, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh. All of that just sort of stewing in your heart. That is what enslaved us before we came, became a Christian. But here's what I want you to understand. Those things aren't in control anymore if you're a Christian. Truly. You're not in the same boat that you were in before you became a Christian. Those things have in fact been dethroned. Not just in theory, not just in an abstract theological sense, but in a real concrete, lived out, personal, experiential sense. Every single day you wake up, you no longer have that master. Your various passions and pleasures do not rule you. They are not your slave driver any longer. But they are still at work. Oh, they are still at work. Flaring up inside of us, often even. And that's what we find in 1 Peter 2.11. This is why Peter must say to those to whom he's writing, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. They are not enthroned any longer. They've been dethroned. They've been taken out of control, taken away from their authority. But they still, nonetheless, wage war against your soul and my soul. Every day, even on vacation. Every day, even on Saturday. Every day, every minute of every day, our pleasures and passions of the flesh are waging war against us to destroy our lives, our marriages, our children, our jobs, our productivity, our kingdom work, everything at war. But we have a new master. We have a new master, Jesus, who has taken hold of us, who possesses us, who owns us, slaves of Christ. Paul begins by saying in chapter one, verse one, Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He'll also say slave of Christ. We have a new master, and he has empowered us by his spirit. Here's where the control comes in. There's been a dethroning, Christ has become king, and now he has infused into our heart, imagine every heart a kingdom of God. Every heart a little kingdom of God, Christ enthroned, the Holy Spirit governing everything within that kingdom. That's who's in control of your life. In truth, even on bad days, the Holy Spirit empowering you against sin. His grace applied to our hearts is daily, as it says in chapter two, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So what are the implications for us as Christians? Here's the first one. I want you to hear this, and I want you to apply this very immediately to your life. What's the first thing that comes in, into your mind there are things in your life, in my life, there are things in your life that are pretending to enslave you. That's very important that you get that word, pretending. 
Because if you're a Christian, there is nothing in your life that enslaves you, nothing. But there are many things that pretend to enslave you. How often do you sit across from Christians, maybe in your, in your small group or you're discipling, a, me as, as an elder and the other elders, how often do we sit across from Christians who really do believe that they're enslaved to whatever, to whatever it is that's destroying their lives. They believe that they are enslaved. That is, that is a, an ignorance of the gospel. It is an ignorance of the grace of God that has appeared because it's not true. There is only one master and he is Jesus. And anything that tells you it enslaves you is a pretender, a liar. It is from Satan, the father of lies. It is not true. And in response, also as an implication for us, in response to grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I say this straightforwardly, repent and control yourself. Seriously. It's that simple. You say, oh, it's not that simple. There's got to be more to it. It's that simple. Turn away from sin and turn towards God. When you were baptized, you were saying publicly that you have turned away from sin, that you have died to sin, and you've been raised to new life in Christ. It is that simple. Repent and control yourself. That is what each and every one of us needs to hear. Control yourself because you can by the power of God, by the grace of this new, self-giving, precious, loving master, the Lord Jesus. I want you to hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. His intensity is incredible. This is convicting to all of us. This is the way we all ought to be. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Listen to what Paul says. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. We all need to hear that. We must do it. And we can do it by the grace and power of God. Something we must get if we are to deal with the ethical weight of Titus. Thirdly, I think we see as we come away from Titus that we are to fight the false. Fight the false. From the opening verses of this letter, we see that everything about the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul had to do with the truth. Paul was a man of the truth, most fundamentally. The apostolic message is true or trustworthy as he describes it because of two things, because of its source and its effect. That is what makes the apostolic gospel true. That is what makes Paul's message true. Its source and its effect. Its source, it is from none other than God. This is the way Paul opens in Galatians chapter one. He's dealing with some people who are going into falsehood. They're going into error. And he's telling them, this is not something I just preached to you because I thought of it sitting on a rock one day somewhere around the Mediterranean Sea. That's not how it happened. 
I received this from God, from God's son as he appeared to me. He's made it known to me. I am simply conveying something to you that has come from God. Its source is not man. Its source is not me. It's not even really a really great man. It's from God. That is why it is true, because God is true. And that's one of the things that we must never forget about the word of God. The word of God is true because it is the inspired word of God. It is God's breathed out word. It is true and trustworthy in every respect. Its source is God and its effect. That's also what makes it true. Its effect, it provides eternal life. You can bank on it. You can be sure that when you share the gospel with somebody, it is a life-giving gospel. It produces the effect that it was meant to. There are plenty of messages that don't produce an effect. We're told at the end of chapter one that those who turn away from the truth are unfit for any good work. No effect there. It just disappears. It's like mist or cotton candy. It has no substance. It just disappears. No effect. Whereas the effect, the effect of this gospel in a person's life is eternal life. And that shows up in all kinds of ways as we live out the Christian life. Any other message is just the opposite. It's from man and it cannot bring you life. And here is just an appeal to you. You can read all the books that you want to read and you can educate yourself on all the various areas of life, you know, whether it's leadership or, or parenting or whatever else, and you can fill your mind with all kinds of wisdom from man and God has given a common grace to man whereby we know things and we have rationality and reason which separates us from the beasts. And so we're able to put these things together. But only... The word of God can give life, true, lasting, eternal substance that changes lives. It's sufficient. It brings joy, it brings wisdom, it brings everything. So just a plea to turn our hearts to the truth, to the word of God. But Paul identifies the false as two things. So what is the false? If we are to fight the false, what is the false? Two things here I think we see clearly. One, a replacement of the gospel of grace. There's good news. The grace of God has appeared. There you go. And what Paul is saying is that any replacement of that is false. So for example, in 114, chapter one, verse 14, we have Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Kind of restated in chapter three, verse nine, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. All of these things, whether they are human speculations about all kinds of fascinating topics or trying to keep a rule book that some man wrote for you to follow, either of those things are false categorically because they do not put at the center the grace of God that has appeared. Any substitute for God's gracious activity in history to save people through Jesus is false, period. It's false. We are to fight it. And let me say this as well. If we are to understand what it means to fight the false and we are to understand what it is that is false, we have to also get this second point and that is any so-called knowledge of the truth that, that does not accord with godliness is false. Look at chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and look at what he says, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. It's easy. If it is knowledge of the truth, 
so-called but does not accord with godliness, it is not knowledge of the truth. It's that easy. So you can know, you can know that where there is a supposed knowledge of the truth but you don't see godly living, you don't see an emphasis on self-control, you don't see an emphasis on bringing your body under subjection as Paul talked about, you can know that that is, that is false. It is not the way we are to understand the truth. So one of the main takeaways from Titus is that we must fight the false. And we find this throughout this book, the role of Paul and Titus. Paul leaves Titus there and Titus is in the business of reminding and rebuking and teaching and doing all of these things. But the main reason that Titus is left in Crete is this, to appoint elders. Elders who will oversee the churches. And we know from Acts that this was Paul's standard approach. He would plant a church with the gospel and he would bring in what I'm going to call gospel protectors who would, or he would have the people appoint gospel protectors. These are people who fight the false within the context of the local church. And this is what we have in chapter one, verse nine. So look there, please. Chapter one, verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders must fight for the truth by fighting the false. And this is both proactive and reactive. It involves teaching and reminding and instructing, and then it involves silencing and rebuking. It will always involve both of these. As we go through and we look at all of the imperatives that Paul gives to Titus throughout this epistle, he says that, that, that we're going, you're going to be doing these things, constantly reinforcing the truth and constantly attacking error. It is proactive and reactive, always at the same time. And I also want to make this application to us. Do you know that this fight takes place every day in your heart, in each of our hearts? Two fights. One, replace the gospel with something else. Get distracted, get busy, replace the gospel with something else. That fight's always going on in your mind. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? Are you vigilant, watchful about that? And secondly, there is always a temptation within us every day, a fight every single day to grow lax in self-control, to grow lax in uprightness and godliness and fighting against those worldly passions. These things are always at work in us. Every single day, you, even now, as, we sit, as you sit there and as I stand up here and as you leave today, even now, there is a battle to be fought for the gospel and for godliness every moment of every day. So would we get this from Titus? Would we fight the false? These latter two will go a little more quickly because they flow out very easily of everything we've looked at, but number four is serve the saints. Just as we have the recurring themes of savior and self-control throughout this epistle, two ideas that we see repeated, we also have the recurring theme of good works. So you go throughout Titus and constantly you're told, good works, good works, do good works, devote yourself to good works. Titus is to be a model of good works. The people are to devote themselves to good works. Christians are by nature those who are zealous for good works, chapter two, verse 14. And then twice he, he talks about what a life looks like if there are no good works. It's called unfit for good works or it's called unfruitful. So an unfit life is a bad life. 
It's a wasted life. An unfruitful life is a bad life. It is a, a wasted life. Instead, devote yourselves to good works. And just as I said when I started to talk about grace, just as I said that grace is like a bracket, a set of brackets for this epistle. At the beginning we have grace, and at the end we have grace. The same is true for this idea of good works. Look at chapter one, verse one. Notice Paul. He's these two things, a servant and an apostle. What's it say next? For the sake of others. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Serving the saints of God was at the heart of everything Paul did. He didn't just preach to preach. He didn't just write to write, send people to send people, wander around everywhere he was going just for the sake of it. He did it for people because he loved people because the love of Christ was in him. Look at the end, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. At the beginning of the epistle, serve the saints. At the end of the epistle, serve the saints, just as we have grace at the beginning and the end. We've seen, I think, this so much among our people here at Four Corners Church. It's such a blessing. I mean, we, Jennifer and I have experienced it so much, and, and many of you have too, especially if you've had the death of a loved one or you've had a, a, a child born or you've had various things go on, a family member sick. How much have we experienced in this church the service to the saints from God's people. Praise God for that. Praise God that his grace is showing up among us as we witness the love that is demonstrated for one another here in this, in, among these people, among this people of God. We praise God for that. And I think one area of application for us is in our gospel community groups. If you, if you have been convicted throughout this series about your attention or devotion to good works, one application point for you, I think, if you just constantly, God has gone, constantly been laying on your heart, you know, I don't, I'm not devoted to good works, I really am just self-centered. I'm not caring for the saints at all. One of the ways that you can apply this to your life immediately is pour yourself into your gospel community group and begin to think as we talk about dying in community, building on exposition, centering on Christ, dying in community, the third part of our vision statement. As we begin to think about that, Enter into our gospel community groups looking for ways to sacrifice self for other people. That's a starting point. And then for groups themselves to begin to link up and do things for one another and do things for the people in our church. We've seen this so much already, but this is one of the ways that we can serve the saints. And as we finish this morning, finally adorn the answer. One thing that should be clear to all of us after reading Titus is that unbelievers are in a terrible state. A terrible state. Look at 3 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. I read it before, but I'll read it again. For we ourselves were once. Now you're about to get a description of every non Christian that you know, every unbelieving person, even your parents, your children your brothers and sisters, your best friends, your coworkers, your boss, and all of us before Christ changed us. Once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you feel the weight of that? You believe that's true? That's what God's word says about unbelieving people. Do you believe that? Or are you under a false worldly illusion that this is not true of the people you know and love who don't know the Lord? This is true. At the heart of it, this is every person who does not know Christ. This is what life is for a non-Christian. And Titus tells us two things on this point as we wrap up today. Number one, that we've been given the solution to the problem for those people. We have it. We have the solution to their problem. We have the answer to their question. What is the answer? Chapter two, verse 10, the doctrine of God our Savior. Everything we've been talking about this morning, everything we've been talking about as we've spent all these months in Titus, everything that you find on that wall and on that wall, that's the answer for those folks whose lives are described by what we have in chapter three, verse three. We've been given the answer, and number two, that we have a responsibility to put the truth and the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior on display for all to see. So chapter two, verse 10 again, what does it say? That in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this is our parting prayer as a church as we leave Titus, that in everything we may in fact adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And how do we do this for a world that is defined by 3-3, what we find there? How do we do this for that world, these people that we know and love? By grasping and clinging to grace, by controlling our fleshly passions, which we can control, by fighting for the truth delivered to us in God's word, and by devoting ourselves to serving others. Because when they see our love for one another, they will be drawn to our master. They will see that this love which God has poured into our hearts is real, it is effective, and they too can have this love if they will trust in this same Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your word. We pray these things into our, into our church, God. We believe you hear prayer. We believe that you love us as we've just seen. And God, we believe that you want our church to be healthy and strong. We believe that you desire for us to grasp your grace, to control our carnal passions, to fight what is false, to serve one another, and to adorn your beautiful gospel to a world who so desperately needs it. God, would we feel the weight of Titus as a church, as, as a leadership, and as anyone who, who even is attending, not, not just, just sort of visiting even today, would we feel the weight of Titus, of what is in this precious little epistle, just three chapters written to this island, written to Titus, serving on this island. God, would we feel the weight of this epistle, and would we go out today and not be simply hearers of this word, but doers of it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.